Hey, what's up, Resonate Church? It's good to see you, every single one of you here, and all those who are joining us online, whether you're in Oakland or the cushy seats of Hayward or uh, more cushy seats in your home, wherever you are. Um, hey, welcome. So glad that you're joining us for a really pivotal series, really important series that we are going through called Whatever It Takes. If you were here last week, man, the Lord just... Uh, poured out his Holy Spirit on us, and I'm not sure if you were in the midst where people were just laying out their hands before them and just saying, take take whatever that's holding us back from experiencing that transformation, and people are doing that. Amazing things were happening in this place, and, and now we get to a place where um, we're asking, okay, so we are followers of Jesus now. Where do you want to take us? And so we find today in, in a spot in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus is teaching a series of sermons called the Sermon on the Plains. Now, Sermon on the Plains is not as famous as the Sermon on the Mount because in Matthew, in his account from chapter 5 through 7, he has a series of amazing sermons that he preaches. But similarly, in Luke chapter 6, it's only one chapter. It does say in verse 17 that Jesus actually came down from a mountain and started preaching from the plains, a flat area. And, and he starts saying things um, like amazing. And in fact, this is really interesting because um, right then and there, Jesus was following, gathering a large crowd of people. Throngs of people were following him. And in a sense, he was trending on Twitter, you know, and he had thousands of followers on TikTok. And then people were coming to him. And man, he was kind of like the influencer of his time. And what he was doing is he was showing a way to live a life that was very different than how everybody else lived. And he said, I want you to do things radically. I want you to do things differently. And he goes on to tell us what that might look like. And the very first thing he tells us here is that something so preposterous, so ridiculous, that last week when we're called to give up everything, all of our riches, that seems like a walk in the park compared to what he's going to ask us today. He takes a breath and tells us, perhaps the hardest commandment to obey in the entire Bible. He says, um, love your enemies. Love your enemies. That's the craziest thing in the world, isn't it? Isn't our faith like just a crazy thing? Love our enemies. I have a hard time loving people I love. <laughs> like, love your enemies. What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, let's look into this. Uh, Luke chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. And, you know, it's no surprise to you that we look at our Bibles every single week, so you should bring them. And um, Luke chapter 6, all of our campuses, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? And we'll pray once again that the Holy Spirit uh, preach a better sermon than the one that you're about to hear from me. Luke 6, verses 27 through 38, this is the Word of the Lord. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. 
but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. That is the word of the Lord for this great Super Bowl Sunday. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you please have a seat in all of our campuses? And could I just be very honest and open and frank to you? I'll look at something like this and just kind of say, how is this possible? Did you listen to the list that Jesus gave us? And if this is a commandment that we are to follow, how are we going to do this? I mean, what does it mean to love our enemies, right? Does it mean that Raider fans today must root for the Niners? Does it mean that? That all of us have to be Swifties for the day? (laughs) Somehow, Somehow you and I like fall in love with the Dodgers all of a sudden? I mean, what does this mean? Now, I just want to clarify up front, okay? To start, this passage raises a lot of questions that will not be answered in this context, but does, uh, it does answer them, the whole entire Bible. We have to look at it as a counsel of God, and we will answer some of these. For example, uh, it's right to report somebody who assaults you. You shouldn't just turn the other cheek, right? Or it's okay to practice self-defense. In fact, it is very compassionate to stand up for the abuse and to report abuse, elderly abuse, children abuse, women abuse, or abuse to the poor, whatever it is, to the least of these. We should fight, and we should raise up, and we should address. But Jesus is not addressing those kind of issues. In fact, what he's speaking about here in this context is really about his disciples following and Jesus and him feeling or them feeling resistance of the gospel. Like the the question is, who are and how can we treat uh, the people that are the enemies of the gospel? And Jesus here gives us an amazing response. He says, this is the way I want you to follow me. Okay, This is how you are to respond to people who are opposing uh, Christianity. So let me give you just three headings uh, as we work through this passage. First, the problem. Uh, I'll tell you it's a problem because it's really problematic as to how we're to do this. Secondly, it's the power. Where are we going to get the power and the dynamic to do this? And third, Jesus leaves us with an incredible principle, okay? So first, if you're taking notes of problem, write the problem down. Okay, Jesus says here, one of the marks of a saved and sanctified believer is to love their enemies. Now, immediately, many of us will say, hey, like, I don't really have enemies. Who are enemies? Well, You might not call them enemies, but there are so many people that you and I don't like. And to be honest, like, it it, it gives us allergies thinking of being nice to them, you know, or or to bless them, or to pray for them, or to offer the other cheek of the ones that want to curse us and hate us and hit us. I mean, and, and to give to them and not expect anything in return. This is like crazy. Like, what does this mean, right? So we all have people that we wouldn't call necessarily enemies, but we don't like them. In fact, we hate them if we're honest. In fact, what's crazy about this passage, I'll just increase the dial here, is that this is the very first time that Luke uses the word love in the verb form. 
Up until now, it's, it's said a couple times in the noun form, but now in the verb form. And you know what he says? You know, in the Greek, there are several and different ways that you express um, love, right? Eros love is the romantic love. Storge is like love for the family. Like phileo love is a brotherly love. That's where we get the word Philadelphia. And here, Jesus uses the word agape, which is the word for sacrificial love, the way God loves us. And now, because it's a verb, now we know that there has to be a direct object to which that verb is applied to. And instead of saying, I want you to agape love your cute little daughter, I, I want you to agape love your bestie, I, instead of saying, I, I want you to agape love your husband or your wife, he says, I want you to agape love your enemy. And you're like, come on now. Man, how could that be even possible? And it's totally against the grain of our culture, right? Our culture encourages us to hate our enemies. Just look and see, nobody's loving enemies in our culture. Instead, it is so fashionable to shame them publicly, you know, to get into our echo chambers and dog them and cancel our enemies, punish our enemies, avoid our enemies, ostracize our enemies because, you know, they're toxic, you know? And then we should avoid them. Even Christians saying this junk. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I, I want you to love them. Now, who might these be? I mean, there are people who oppose you for religious reasons. There are people who oppose you for uh, cultural re reasons or even political reasons. I mean, could you imagine in this day and age, like Democrats and Republicans hanging out, loving each other, right? That just seems like an unknown world to us right now. Or maybe the differences between ideologies. Maybe you believe something that other people don't. And you're afraid to say it because they're going to slam you for it. They're going to cancel you for it. What Jesus says here, I'm preparing you to love all these people who oppose you. In fact, he goes on further and says, hey, I'm going to demonstrate how to love uh, the Gentiles and the Samaritans, the enemies of Israel. I I'm going to do it not so that I could show you a radical example not, not just um, uh, to show you a radical teaching. I want to show you a radical dynamic. I'm going to do this. So what specifically and how are we to love these enemies? To what end? And ready, he goes on a, a list that is, is mind-boggling. So let's go verse by verse and take a look at every single one. First, if you're taking notes, he says, do good to those who hate you. What? Do good to those who hate you. Verse 27, but I say to you who here love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Now, you realize if you read scripture, um, this is not a new commandment. You know, in Exodus 23, it says, if you come across an enemy's oxen, make sure you return it back to him. Or when we see in Proverbs 25, it says, you know, when your enemy is hungry, then you should feed him. Or we read in Romans 12, Paul says, overcome evil with what? Good, yeah, overcome evil by doing good. And you're like, why would people hate us? Well, First John tells us that we should not be surprised when the world hates us. Why? Why do they hate us? Because some love darkness more than light. It's, that's his explanation. So we're called to be good to them. But secondly, we see that we are to bless those who curse you. Wow, bless those who curse you. Verse 28, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Now, those who curse us are people who want to cause harm to us because of our faith. Now, 
I'll tell you, like, if you are in this room or Hayward, Oakland, or online, if you've ever experienced somebody cussing you out in your face, I'll tell you, that's just not a pleasant experience. When a person comes up to you and becomes a threat, man, that's a really, really tough thing to just be humble in front of. In fact, I, I might not surprise you, and some I will, but I, I have people cussing at me all the time. Like, um, yeah, like um, even church members. Um, just not too long ago, a, a church member uh, came up to me, and um, not came up to me, but on his phone, um, we were close enough that he had my phone number, and he just started, like, just berating me with every F-bomb you could ever imagine, even some that I didn't recognize. I'm like, oh, that's a new word. Um, and so he just started, like, berating me, berating me, calling me, accusing me, character assassinating, all these things. He, as a Christian, actually wished me that I would go to hell. I mean, that's pretty crazy, right? And I'm reading this, and I'm like, well, it might be a surprise to you. You know, church hurt is real, but so is sheep biting. Do you know that sheep bite? Yeah, sometimes you guys do. And, and so, so I, I read this thing, and I'm like, I saw my fist get tightened. And I, I felt my teeth grit, and I was ready to go. And I was just like, say it to my face. I could say that because he was a scrawny engineer, whatever. But um, I'm like, say it to my face, right? And I will show you love in Jesus' name. I mean, I'll do it. I'll do it. Like, I'll, I'll do it. And then immediately the Lord, I mean, I'm serious. The Lord just like, hey, 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 hey. That's, that's not Christ-like. That's not like me. He's like, well, you can't resent. You can't feed your soul with darkness. You know, you need to pray for them. You need to bless them. You, want, you need to cause and want God for them to flourish, for God to be gracious to them, God to bless them. Now, come on, but that seems impossible. I just got cussed out. He goes further. He says, pray, those, pray for those who abuse you. Wow. <laughs> now, could I just make clear right now that I don't think Jesus is saying that we shouldn't punish people who abuse other people, okay? I don't think that's what he's saying. In fact, Paul alludes to this very text in Romans 12, and he goes on 13, telling us about the legitimate use of government force and authority and our ability to wield the sword. So he's not saying we shouldn't defend ourselves. He's not saying, I don't think, that we shouldn't report crime. I think it is our moral responsibility, and I think it's an act of compassion uh, for us to say something and to fail to report uh, uh, abuse situation is evil. But again, I, I'm sticking to the context here, and Jesus is specifically speaking into Christian persecution, and he's showing mercy to those who oppose the faith. Like him, he's, he's actually weeping over Jerusalem, remember? Why? Because in the moment, he was going to be taken to the cross by his enemies. And what does he say on the cross? He says, Father, forgive them, for they, they do not know what they're doing. In fact, in Acts 7, we see the first Christian martyr, um, Stephen, who is getting stoned for his faith, and he looks up to the heavens, and he says, Father, do not hold this sin against them. And, and in 1 Peter 2, Peter says, follow Jesus' example, for he did not revile in return. You see, so we have another example here that is just quite remarkable. Pray for those people who abuse you? Sounds ridiculous, but you know, do you realize prayer is probably the best powerful mechanism 
for us to soften our hearts towards, towards them. Pray for them. Pray for them. And then he says another thing. He says, offer the other cheek. Offer the other cheek. Verse 29, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the others also. Now, again, I don't think Jesus is talking about an abusive situation where there's domestic violence and you're like, go ahead, beat me down. No, this is not what he's saying, okay? I think he's more talking about insult than injury. I'll explain. But if you're at a sports bar today rooting on the Niners and there's a Kansas City fan and he strikes you on the cheek, please don't turn the other cheek and say, my pastor says so. Don't say that. Don't include me in your reason, okay? I'm not saying that. Don't get beat up today for the cause of Christ. That's not Christ glorifying. Okay, don't say that. I don't think that's what Jesus actually had in mind. I don't think this prohibits us from engaging in self-defense or, or that we neglect our, and to protect our homes, protect our family, or even protect our nation and country. Uh, so don't do that. Well, I've, I've heard a great example of this, an Irish boxer who actually became a Christian. And he became like a dude that was just preaching in tent revivals. So he was in an outdoor tent. He was preaching the gospel. And three real sus people from the back came, right? And they were like, oh, super sus. And they were like, they, they wanted, they were, you know, they were interrupting. They were vile. They were rude. And eventually they made their way up. And one of them punched the pastor in the face. And this pastor, being a new Christian, saying, oh, I, I remember what Jesus said. i got to turn to the other cheek. He turns to the other cheek. The other guy punches him in the face. And the pastor now, who was a former boxer, said, okay, I think I met my quota. Um, um, I have no further instructions from Jesus, so he beat all three of them up. <laughs> Which is like, yes, like that, that, that's my guy. Right? That's, <laughs> I love that story. But, but here, I don't think Jesus is talking about taking a punch to the jaw. Instead, I think he's talking about an insult because, you know, the parallel passage in the similar sermon that Jesus preached on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he says, he says you know, the slapping of the cheek on the right side. The reason why is the Jewish culture, they would use their right hand and they would strike the right side. The only way you could do it is if you use the right hand backhand. And so this is not for the form of, you know, injury, but more insult right? You realize that that's an insult. Nobody slaps the back. There's no MMA fighter going, hi-ya, like nobody. Nobody doing that because they're not trying to insult you. They're to, I mean, injure you. They're to insult you. And so the point is um, when you are being insulted by being a Christian because you're praying and you're being insulted, you're belittled, even your children, like and they, even maybe students here, they, they don't want to pray during lunch because they might be insulted by somebody. Why are you doing that? You're so foolish, you're so dumb for preaching the gospel, for loving the gospel. The Bible will tell us uh, that we need to absorb this insult and pray for those people to be converted, to be loved by God, for them to love God. Uh, lastly here, we see that we are to offer radical generosity. Offer radical generosity. Verse 29, and from one who takes away your cloak do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your good, do not demand them back. Now, your cloak was the outer robe, and your, your um, tunic was the inner one, like the shirt that you were wearing off, uh, you know, on your skin. It, it would touch your skin. He's saying, give it, give it to them. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, get naked. That's not what he's saying. I, I do think, though, Jesus is his principle here. It's not take it literal, but he's saying, be radically generous. 
be radically generous. So much so when the world looks at us, they will be puzzled by our generosity, that it would look very different than every other philanthropic um, uh, desire of companies and individuals, that Christians themselves, because that Jesus has commanded us here, that we are to be radically generous to those people who even oppose us, that they might recognize us as Christians. And this kind of Christianity changes the world. In fact, N.T. Wright puts it so eloquently, I, I want us to consider this deeper. Just take it in. It says this, the kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was, was all about this glorious, uproarious, that's an awesome word, uproarious, absurd generosity. Think of the best thing you can do for the worst person and go ahead and do it. Think of what you really like for someone else to do for you and do it for them. Think of the people to whom you are tempted to be nasty and lavish generosity on them instead. And these instructions have such fresh, spring-like quality. They're all about this new life bursting out energetically like flowers growing through concrete. Could you imagine startling everyone with their color and vigor? Could you imagine walking around seeing flowers budding all over through concrete, you're like, what in the world? And that's exactly what we want unbelievers to look at Christians and feel. Wow, they're beautiful. How's this happening? So listen, before I move on to the next point, a little self-examination together, okay? Self-examination about your love. I just want to address four kinds of love here that we see. First is a selfish love. A selfish love. That's like loving people who like us. You know, it's easy uh, to like people who like us because we get something instead from them. Popularity, coolness, or whatever they're giving to you, you're like, yeah, you love them because what you get from them. And so that's a selfish love. But second is a common love, loving people who are like us, right? Have you ever been into a room where you say, ah, my kind of people? You know, when you feel that, that's a common love. That's not really a noble love. That's like you find commonality in the things that they believe, maybe, them, you know, a, a political party or your race or your culture. You're like, oh, my people. That's common love. But extraordinary love is loving those who are unlike us, like different race, different culture. And you realize our church, when my friends from other parts of the country come and look at you guys, are like, this doesn't make sense. How do you guys all love each other when you see social economic differences, you see cultural and racial differences, and we are one church? It's like, that is beautiful. That's extraordinary love. But one better is this revolutionary love, and that is loving those who dislike us. And Jesus is calling us towards that love, revolutionary love. And so the problem is, man, how are we going to do this? How, where are we going to get the power to do that? So the next thing is the power, the power. Let me show you where we get the power to do it. Jesus says here in verse 32, if you love only those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if, you love, if you're just good only to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Do you see the word benefit there? It comes out three times here. Benefit, benefit, credit in the ESV. It's, just, it's the same word. In the Greek New Testament, 
It's fascinating that English, it says benefit, but do you know what the word is here in Greek, literally? It's the word charis. Maybe you've heard of it because it's like people's names. But do you know what charis is in English? It's grace. It's unmerited favor. That's what it means. So replace unmerited favor to everything that Jesus is saying. He's, he's making an incredible, I mean, incredible argument. He's saying, hey, if you love those who love you, where is the unmerited favor in that? If you're just good to those who are good to you, what is the unmerited favor in that? That's not unmerited love. You don't love them uh, for them. You are loving them for you. That is merited love. And Jesus is saying, I need you to love them through unmerited love. When they're not deserving, when they don't give you, you give to them. When they're not loving, you love them. You're like, how, how, how is this possible? Well, here's the dynamic. Ready? And if you get this, you get the power to do it. We get the power to do it. Wherever you are, Oakland, you know, Hayward, online, here, this is the power. Verse 35, this is key. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, for your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Wow. So here's the key to everything. And if you take this verse in verse 35 into your heart, you're going to be able to do it. If you don't take this into the center of your life, it's going to be an incredible challenge for you to do what is impossible. So the question is, where do we get the source of power? How do we get the dynamic in us? How does this verse become the fuse that actually lights us up so that we could explode in this love inside? Well, here are two truths. If you're taking notes, it's time to pay attention. Two things. Number one, you are adopted as sons and daughters. You are adopted as sons and daughters. See, in verse 35, it says, you will be sons of the Most High. He's saying, if you do these things, you'll be living like sons of the Most High because you are. He says, you are adopted. What does adoption mean? Do you know in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says that though everyone's created by God, everyone's loved by God, everyone is valued by God, that it is only by the act of grace that you are adopted by God. Not everybody's adopted by God. But if you're a Christian, you are by grace, adopted by God. Not because of what you've done, not because of the way you look, not because you come to church, but you are adopted by God if you profess Christ. Now, in the New Testament, you know, you realize back then, and there were really wealthy men and women that had a lot to leave, but they were barren. They didn't have children. So what did they do? This is the image of them actually adopting legally somebody who was an adult and saying, hey, I don't have children to leave um, back all this wealth, I'm about to die, and so I want to sign you up. So they get a lawyer, and they write it up, and immediately there will be a legal transaction where that person who is adopted becomes completely transformed. Their life is never the same because now they become the heirs of this really wealthy man or a woman. That is the picture of the New Testament as you and I are adopted by God. Well, three features of that adopted grace. First, it is a legal grace. It is a legal grace because once you do it, once the seal is put on, you can't reverse it. Legally now, you are the proprietor. You are the beneficiary. You are the recipient of all that your father has. That's amazing. 
That is amazing. God will not change his mind on you. You and I are legally adopted by God through grace. Praise God. Hallelujah. That is an amazing gift. The second thing is we have intimate grace with him. He's no longer like God that we have to be afraid of, but we're intimate. We're close because he's our daddy. And because I'm the daddy of my children, you know what they do? They just barge in the bathroom when I'm in it. You know, like, you know, children do that. Or like I have a, I'm eating dinner and I have like a seat like about this room behind like my seat I'm, because I'm scooched up a little bit. And they feel like that's like um, a, a seat that welcomes them to sit back. And then I'm eating dinner and they're wrapping their legs around me. They want to be intimate with me. We share things. We go places. This is a kind of intimacy and a picture that the New Testament gives because we have a God who is not a ruler, just a king, but our dad, which is incredible. And third, it is an accessible grace. Now think about this, how accessible this is. Say you, can't, you have a rough night and you have a hard time sleeping. You have a hard time falling asleep. Have you ever crossed your mind? Did it ever cross your mind to call your CEO at 2 a.m. in the morning? Have you, have you ever thought that? Of course not. Nobody thinks that. But you call your dad who will come into your room and comfort you. Dad, could you sit with me? Could you protect me because I'm scared? Could you keep me company because you're kind? I, I could always interrupt you because you're, you're my daddy. You give me that access. And this is the picture of the New Testament when our Heavenly Father adopts us into this mind-blowing grace. And my question is, is this the greatest thing about you? Is this the greatest thing about your life? And I'm just saying it should because there's nothing in your identity, there's nothing that you've accomplished that is greater than that. What are you going to boast of, your job, your house, your little tricked-out car, or some of you like a computer that has a light on? What, what, what are you going to boast about? This heavenly Father loves you and he is your dad. That is the most amazing news on the face of the planet for the Christian. And man, some of you are not even like convinced of that. And that's why I have to tell you about this story about this boy named Brawny. Brawny, that's a weird name. But he's famous. He has 5.8 followers on TikTok. Why? He's not innovative. He doesn't do cool videos or anything. But he does go to a school called USC. Eh, average. Um, and so why is he so famous? Well, he does play basketball for that school, but he's not even that good. He comes off the bench and scores like four points a game. So he's a scrub there. So why is he so famous? Why are people following him? I'll tell you why. Because the greatest thing about Bronny is not his basketball game. His greatest is not where he goes to school. It's not because what he looks like. It's because of his dad's name is LeBron James. LeBron James has 160 million followers. And this is why he gets this attention. And then Bronny's life, the greatest thing about his life is the fact that he's a son of LeBron James. The greatest thing about a Christian's life is we are a son of the King Most High. <laughs> Nothing greater. And anything that you choose to boast over that is like pretending that LeBron, I mean, Bronny is really good at basketball. You're not. He's not. Stop <laughs> pretending. Now, listen, watch out. Look out. Hey, listen. Um, let me give you a picture of adoption. 
Some of you, here's, here's the hurdle that we have to get over because sometimes we think we, we're, like, we're like, you know, when we think about our Heavenly Father adopting us, we're, we're like kids reaching up, you know, and like we're so cute. We have like this little pink or blue, light blue outfit, and we have chubby cheeks, and we have eyelashes that are fluttering, and we have a bow on our hair, and we're like reaching over. We have like dough-like, you know, segments on our skin that we want to squeeze, and we're like, adopt us, adopt us, adopt us is not the picture of our adoption. Rather, it's more like an animal shelter where it's dingy and dark and smelly. And the rescuer comes, and all you see are dogs just wanting to bite. Fangs showing, slobbering everywhere, poop everywhere, just like, and just wanting to bite the very person that wants to rescue you. That is a more accurate picture of our adoption. You and I are dogs. We are enemies of God. And so here is the power. Ready? Here's the second truth. Yes, you were adopted by God by making us now sons and daughters. But the second thing is you were his enemy. You were his enemy. Verse 35, it goes on and says, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. And Jesus is saying here, my father is grateful to the I mean, kind to the ungrateful and evil. Who do you think Jesus is talking about here? Somebody else? No, he's talking about adoptive kids. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. We are his enemies. And the fire that could potentially launch you into this atmosphere, a fire that would explode you into this catalytic dynamite, the truth is found right here. A Christian understands him or herself as an adopted enemy. Adopted enemy. That's who you and I are. And the reason why this world does not have this power, you realize, is that religious people and irreligious people, they don't think they were enemies. They were like, God, when were we ever enemies to you? They say that. You know, think about the religious person. They're like trying hard to obey God. And they're like, yeah, we look beautiful. Look at, look at all the other heathens right there. We're not them. You know, so we're not enemies of God. And then you look at irreligious people, and irreligious people are like, how could we actually be enemies to those that we don't even believe in? That doesn't even make sense. And the only people that acknowledges that we could be enemies of God are Christians, whom by only grace alone we are adopted into his family, not by your achievement, not by your activities, not by your church attendance, not by your good looks, after all, you and I have resented his claim on us. We have resisted his call on us. And think about all the ways you've canceled him. My goodness, think about all the ways that I've canceled him. Have you ever been so disappointed by God, hurt by God, that you just stopped praying? That's canceling. Have you ever, have you ever just refused to read the word of God? I don't, it, it was a day, it was a week, then the week turned into two and months and maybe a year. Like, you just grow so cold. I'm like, you just cancel God. He wants you. He, he, he wants you in. And so the Christian is somebody who says, man, I'm an enemy. <laughs> I have no reason that God should love me. But you know what? I'm also adopted. And when those two things come together, it becomes a catalyst. It becomes the fuse to the dynamite that will explode in you and will give you a chance to become everything that Jesus has called us to do. Well, you might say, well, when did God do this for me? Well, the clear answer is on the cross. 
Because you realize that everything that I listed off, you and I have done to Jesus. And then think about it. It says, you know, love those who hate you. I mean, my goodness, like, be, is he good to us when we hated him? Yes, on the cross. Was Jesus cursed? Yes. Was Jesus abused? Yes. Was he stricken? Not only on the cheek, but the other cheek. Not only on the back, but in, on his head. Yes. Did he, did he give his, his cloak and his tunic? Yes. We stripped all that from him. We stripped him naked. And yet, what did God do? What did Jesus do on the cross? He offered his entire self. See? Jesus doesn't just tell us this because he wants us to give a command. He's not saying, hey, do this because I did it. That's an example. But instead, he gives us a dynamic that says, do this because I did this for you. That's the dynamic. That's where you're like, it was for me. And that goes from selfish love to common love to extraordinary love to a revolutionary love. I mean, could, could you just, in this moment, think about what you gained from him and also at the same time, think about what Jesus got from you. Think about that. I and mean, we abuse relationships, right? We get close to people so that we could get the popularity, we could get the fame, we could get the goods, we could get the companionship. We do these things so that we could get these things. What did Jesus get from getting us? Did he get riches? Did he get more rich? Did his self-esteem get boosted? I mean, does he like, well, now I'm part of the cool club, the sinners, hey. I mean, is that what he's thinking? What did he gain from us? And you're like, well, he got nothing from us. Wrong. Oh, he got something from us. He got our blame. He got our judgment. Remember, it says he made him who knew no sin to be sin. He didn't get nothing. He got all the dirty, all the judgment that should have went to us, but it fell on him. He got our worst. On one hand, you were so lost that he had to die for you. But on the other hand, you were so loved that he had to die for you. He died for you and me. And when you see him doing that, everything changes. When you see us cussing at him, hating him, spitting at him, everything we say, this is impossible for us to do, we actually did it to Jesus. Everything changes. He's dying for us, and you'll never be the same ever again. You know what's really interesting? I was thinking about it this, this week. Um, you know how people, Christians and non-Christians, struggle with the problem of evil. You remember what that is? Problem of evil basically goes like, that. how could a good God uh, do bad, uh, make, allow bad things to happen to people? Right? That's the problem of evil, right? That's fine. I think that's an authentic feeling and emotion and struggle that people have. But do you know what I never see Christians struggling with? Uh, the problem of good. Do you know what that is? It's the very opposite. How could a holy God be so good to evil enemies like us? Have you ever thought about that? See, nobody wrestles at night thinking about the problem of good. Like, how could you love me? I'm so wretched. I'm such a liar. I'm such a fake. How could you love me? We never struggle with that. Do you know why we don't struggle with that? Because we think God owes us his grace. We think God's job is to be kind to us. We think it's God's job to bless us. That's not his job. It is his mercy. 
It is his mercy. It is his kindness. It is his unspeakable grace that comes into our life. It's not his job to be nice to us. He loves you. He leaves you with this principle now. Third, when we learned about just loving our enemies, what it looks like, and the power to do it, and Jesus finally leaves us with this principle. My goodness. Look, verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. And this last part of the verse, 38, always confused me. I was always too embarrassed to ask. It says, good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. What does that mean? I want to close with this. My, my. So this is an agrarian example that Jesus uses because he was talking to the farming community. And the farming community, you know, um, the laborers would have these huge baskets where they would collect wheat. And for their bosses, they would go out into the field and pack this. But they usually packed it about two-thirds full because it was heavy. They brought it back to the barn. They would flight it over and over again. That was their job. But the way they got paid is at the end of that week, the last load that you got to bring in, that was the load that you got to take home. So guess what they did? Instead of packing it two-thirds full, this time, they're like, they packed it, and they shook that thing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> make sure it goes way down. And then they packed some more, and they stomped on that thing, pushed it down, like compressed it. And it would be so heavy, but they would bring it back because it was for them. Could you imagine Jesus saying this exactly? And the, the, the Jewish agrarian audience would chuckle. They're like, oh, that's me. That's me. I know. You got me, Jesus. You know, that's pretty funny. You know, I remember doing the same thing, you know, in college. And if you went to college around my time, you, there were all around college campuses were these things called Mongolian barbecue. Remember them? <laughs> then you got a little bowl. Remember, you got a little plastic bowl, and you get to fill it up with whatever you want, and somebody at the end of the line cooks it for you. It's like a raw bar with meat and vegetables and mushrooms and all these other goodies that you could just put it back. And then they, you, they throw into this huge flat wok, and then with these huge long chopsticks, the chef would just kind of cook it for you and then bring it back to you. But no, it doesn't matter what you put on there that was yours for one sweet price of $5.95. And with inflation now, it would be like $37.80, right? It was one of those situations, man, I love going there, right? One time I was going, and a disciple out of nowhere said, hey, man, like, you do it really bad. Let me show you how to really do it. And so you, sh you get all these shavings of frozen meat. He goes, put that first, stack it up, and get another bowl and compress it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. And when I did that, and the more meat bowl came out, like all the meat just started, like, coming off to the side and made the bowl even bigger. I'm like, this is amazing. He's like, then put some veggies and put another layer of meat on and compress it. I was like, whoa. And he's like, man, stack that thing up with so much noodles that it would just spill over. And I did it, and we take it back. And if you're really good at it, whatever the bowl you give, the chef brings it back in two bowls because it was so much. Now, the, the other side of this illustration is, have you ever gone to the gas station and you, you get the munchies and you get a Lay's potato chips and it looks really full? <laughs> and you open it, you're like, what the? There's four chips in there. <laughs> and this is a question that Jesus asks. You're an adopted enemy. 
no reason on your account that you should be adopted by God. When you poured out your hand and you asked for mercy, Jesus gave you all of himself, densely packed. Even King David said, my cup overflows. It just overflows. It's so heavy. As heavy as the cross. Is God landing in your life, giving you everything he has, including his life? This is what Jesus does for you. And now he's asking, when you give it to me, are you putting four chips in there and hoping that I think it's full? Are you giving the least you could give to be considered a Christian? Or out of your own thanksgiving and this dynamic and this power of this reality that God undeservingly and so faithfully and legally forever loves you, you're like, oh, I have actually more. Let me just pile that on for you, Jesus. Let me give you even more. Let me just, oh, there's a little rim area. Let me just pile that on. Let me compress it. Let me shake it. Take my life. Take everything. Nothing compared to what you gave. Nothing. I'm going to compact that, and I'm going to respond to you. And Jesus says, you give that way. The law of the harvest will be given to you. Whatever you sow, the reaping is far greater. Let's pray. You are deserving of all, everything we have. Jesus, I pray that you would send your spirit and just roam and move about us now. Help us to be struck by this power that is in us to see that we're just your dogs and enemies that nobody would ever want to adopt. And, but you did. You made a way. And, and, and our Father receives us now and sees us as saints. And Father, to a king like that, what do we offer? Do we offer four chips? Or do we offer a basket shaken, a life that is compressed and say, you take everything. You take everything because we have everything already that is in you. Move about us. And may you bring about revolutionary Christians in this room, in the Bay Area, and in the Oakland, and Hayward and all of our online people, wherever we are, and use us and help us to be light, help us to love our enemies in ways that would confuse the world and that we would preach grace because we live out of grace. We thank you that that grace has been applied to us first. We love you, Jesus. We give you everything. In Christ's name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Let's give them praise. Hallelujah.